Hey, Nick, we have some exciting news to announce regarding um, our friends over at the OBG Project. The OBG Project folks have now put all of OBG First within the OBG Resident Core. So you get OBG First for your entire OBGYN residency. How incredible is that, Faye? Yeah, that sounds really great. And just to remind you guys, the resident core over at the OBG project is completely free. All you have to do is sign up and prove that you're a resident. And then you'll get not only OBG first, but also the OBG L&D ebook, as well as excellent curricula, as you know, as well as self-test quizzes and things like that for your studying. Yeah, that's over a $198 per year value. So if you are interested in getting this free educational resource, head over to our website, creogsovercoffee.com, check out the sidebar, get signed up for the OBG Resident Core, and by extension, OBG First, the OBG L&D eBook, all of this awesome stuff, absolutely free, four years of residency. Welcome back. This is Faye. This is Nick. And this is Creogs Over Coffee. Coffee. All right, guys. So we are back today to talk a little bit more in depth about progesterone for preterm prevention in a journal club style. So we'll be reviewing the um, MIS and the Prolong studies. So Nick, what are our learning objectives for today? Yeah. So again, as you said, Faye, we're going to review two of sort of the preeminent or most noteworthy trials, um, the MIS trial and the PROLONG trial, that were both regarding intramuscular progesterone injections for the prevention of preterm birth. From there, we'll discuss some of the conclusions that our OBGYN or medical community has drawn from these studies in particular. And then finally, we'll finish up talking about, as usual, why we do what we do and what we should be doing if we can come away with an answer for that. So I guess a little bit of a hint there and maybe some debate. So, but I guess let's start off, Faye, let's go with some backgrounds. I guess we're doing kind of double journal club here. Yeah. And, you know, um, this might turn into a two episode type of thing where we talk about the MIS trial here and then the prolonged trial after this week and then do our conclusions there. Um, so the, the two trials that we'll be going over is one, the MIS trial, which um, what is called Prevention of Recurrent Preterm Delivery by 17-alpha-hydroxyprogesterone-caproate. And then the second study that we'll be talking about is the Prolong study, which actually is 17-OHPC, so same thing, 17-alpha-hydroxyprogesterone-caproate, to prevent recurrent preterm birth in singleton gestations, the Prolong study, a multicenter international randomized double-blind trial. The studies, the MIS trial, was written by Dr. Paul Meese and his colleagues, and it was done with the NICHD as part of the MFMU. Um, and it was published in 2003 and published in the New England Journal of Medicine because it was such a breakthrough article at that time. Um, and then the second paper, the prolonged study, was done by Dr. Sean Blackwell, as well as a lot of um, people who are active in uh, Society of Maternal Fetal Medicine. Um, Dr. Blackwell, I believe at the time, was actually president of SMFM, and the other members who were in the study who participated were uh, folks like Dr. Cynthia Jomfi, Dr. Brenna Hughes, Dr. Judah Lewis, so really big names in the maternal fetal medicine world. Interestingly, this paper was actually published in the American Journal of Perinatology in 2020, which overall is a great journal, but um, you know, I think we have to be real here and realize that it's nowhere near the impact factor of the New England Journal of Medicine. 
Um, and it's also interesting to note who funded both of these studies. Um, the Mies trial was, of course, funded by the NIH because it was part of the maternal fetal medicine, the network. And Prolong was actually funded by a pharmaceuticals company, uh, the AMAG, which is the pharmaceutical company that actually makes McKenna, which is the brand name for 17 OHP. So now that we kind of got that little bit of like title, who wrote them, um, and kind of where they were published out of the way, Nick, talk to us a little bit about why both of these studies were actually done. Sure. So you started off today talking about that initial study, the, the MICE trial, or MICE trial, however you pronounce. Um, apologies to Dr. Mice out there, because um, <laughs> we're going to pronounce your name four different ways today, I think. That trial was done to try and decrease preterm birth, which is the leading cause of infant mortality and morbidity in the United States. There had been small trials in the lead up to the MICE trial with prophylactic treatment with progestin compounds that had shown some promise, but not all of them had positive results. And there had been a meta-analysis performance that was restricted to 17-hydroxyprogesterone caprate that showed a reduction in preterm birth. And so this was sort of the genesis for why this study was done. The second study was done, so prolong, that is, after the MICE trial, because the MICE trial was actually stopped early. It was stopped early because it was thought actually to be unethical to continue recruitment given the robustness of the evidence of effect, um, which is a little bit of a spoiler for when we get yeah. into the trial ultimately. <laughs> but kind of based on that MICE trial, the FDA actually granted a conditional approval for 17-hydroxyprogesterone for commercial use in 2011 under a provision that another well-conducted randomized trial was eventually done. And so the prolonged study essentially was a confirmatory trial for 17-OHP. And the FDA required, in addition to that MICE trial, a long-term infant follow-up study to look for specific benefits on neonates or risks to neonates. So ultimately, the questions that were sought to be answered in the course of these trials, um, or the primary question, I should say, is that, you know, does the use of weekly 17-hydroxyprogesterone decrease the risk of preterm birth? Um, and ultimately, just again as a spoiler, we're going to find some different answers in these trials. But let's start off, Faye, with the first trial, the mice, mice, mouse, however we're going to pronounce it. Well, I don't know if it's mouse, um, <laughs> but I'm not sure about the other two. <laughs> uh, so we'll talk about these studies a little bit separately now. I know we had like, you know, the background all together. So um, this first trial published in 2003 was done at 19 participating centers, primarily in the United States. For the eligibility criteria, so people who were eligible for the study, they had to have a history of spontaneous preterm birth in a previous pregnancy that occurred somewhere between 20 weeks to 36 weeks and six days. They had to be currently pregnant uh, between 15 weeks and 20 weeks, three days gestation. And they had to have an ultrasound between 14 weeks, zero days to 20 weeks, six days to confirm duration of gestation and to identify any major fetal anomalies. And they were excluded if they had a multifetal gestation, a known fetal anomaly, progesterone or heparin treatment during the current pregnancy, and then a few other ones, things like, you know, current or planned cerclage, hypertension requiring medications, seizure disorders, and a plan to deliver somewhere else other than the 19 participating centers simply because then it would be hard to follow up those outcomes. The intervention overall was that patients were randomized in a two-to-one um, block where basically uh, two people were going to get the 17-OHP to every one person getting placebo. So they were either going to get the study drug, which we already talked about, 
or the placebo, which was actually a mixture of castor oil, which, you know, we're going to talk a little bit more about afterwards because I thought that was a very interesting choice um, to make the placebo. The requirements were that the patients had to be given their first dose between 16 weeks to 20 weeks, six days. And if they didn't return before 20 weeks, six days, then they couldn't participate in the study any longer. And these patients had to have weekly injections until 36 weeks. In terms of outcomes that they were looking at, they collected things like date of delivery, the birth weight, neonatal course, basically everything to assess for preterm delivery, number one, from a maternal side, um, so when they, did, when they delivered, and then also neonatal outcomes. It's interesting because they actually talked about their power calculation here of exactly how many patients they would need to be able to find um, their outcome. And so they estimated that there would be a rate of 37% of preterm delivery in the placebo group, which is a rather high um, percentage. But then if you remember, all of these patients had prior risk because of prior preterm birth. So based off of that, they calculated a sample size of 500 patients with 334 in the progesterone group and 166 in the placebo group to hopefully find a reduction of 33% in the rate of preterm delivery. And then very interestingly, you know, again, this is kind of spoilers, but they had planned interim analyses to kind of look at the outcomes at specific time points. And at their second interim analyses, when only 463 patients had undergone randomization, so they never achieve the full 500. Um, and they had outcome data available for 351 patients. And when they looked at these outcomes, they actually had crossed the boundary for the test of significance of preterm delivery, meaning um, that the p-value that they chose at that time was equal to 0.015. Um, and again, our statistics friends out there, please kind of help us figure out why that was the p-value that was chosen. But basically, um, because of the huge difference in preterm delivery rate in the treatment group versus the placebo group, they decided to halt enrollment and basically stop the study, as we said before, because it would be unethical to continue. All right, Nick, so that's kind of the, you know, methods behind the study. Let's take us through some of the results now. Yeah, so before we get into the nitty-gritty of the results, a little bit of timeline and interesting history um, for this trial as well. They started recruitment in April of 1998, but actually the trial had to be stopped subsequently in February 1999 because the FDA ordered the company that was supplying the active drug at that point to shut down and recall the totality of the company's drugs because of poor quality control and documentation. Um, 150 patients had been enrolled at that point. So a little bit of an interesting sort of start to, to yeah. this trial. A new drug company then took over manufacturing of 17-hydroxyprogesterone caprate, um, and those 150 patients who were previously in the study on the other medication were ultimately not included in the study analyses. So they sort of wiped the slate clean at that point. So the yeah. new timeline ultimately started recruitment in September of 1999, and they ultimately continued through February of 2002. Now, 1,039 patients were deemed eligible for the trial, and 463 of them gave consent. 310 ended up in that progestin group, and 153 were ultimately in a placebo group. Patients were very similar with respect to the mean duration of their previous gestational age, so the pregnancy that resulted in preterm birth and ultimately qualified them for the study. Um, they were also similar in their mean gestational age at the time of randomization and the current pregnancy. 
their race, marital status, BMI, smoking, education level, and a whole host of other kind of table one demographic factors. Of note, about 60% of patients in this study identified as non-Hispanic black, um, which just hold that in your mind when we compare that to the prolonged study, which has a very different demographics. And then the pre-pregnancy BMI on average in this cohort was 26. Women in the placebo group had more previous preterm deliveries on a basis of 1.6 versus 1.4, which came out to a significant p-value. 92% of patients were compliant with the injections, which by the study definition meant they didn't go more than 10 days without an injection. And 50% of patients reported at least one adverse effect associated with injections, the most common being soreness at the site of the injection, 35%, 14% reporting swelling, 11% itching, 6.7% bruising. More women who were receiving progesterone had swelling or a lump at the injection site, you know, kind of just basic things that you would inspect with a intramuscular injection as your treatment. Ultimately, though, we're after this primary outcome, Faye, um, and that was preterm birth. Data here was available for 459 of the 463 patients who were randomized. Delivery before 37 weeks was reduced with a 36.3% incidence in the progesterone group and a 54.9% incidence for the placebo group, which came out to a risk reduction of 0.66. And then also in that, we should mention the spontaneous preterm labor rate was 29.4% for the progesterone group versus 45.1% for the placebo group. Um, I mean, remarkably, that is super duper high. Remember for that sample size, they were targeting a placebo group incidence of preterm birth of 37%. Um, And so here we were seeing that almost 37% in the active treatment group and 55% for the placebo group. Um, So again, really, really interesting um, and kind of surprising findings. The findings were similar for both black and non-black patients, and even more interestingly, um, this kind of difference in delivery perspective actually was still significant at 35 and 32 weeks of gestation. So delivery before 35 weeks occurred in 20.6% of the treatment versus 30.7% of the placebo group, and before 32 weeks was 11.4 versus 19.6. So again, seeing that risk reduction of about a third to almost a half in that before 32-week group. Other things between the groups ultimately were not different. So hospital visits for preterm labor, the use of tocolytic therapy, the use of corticosteroids, the incidence of C-section, um, risk for chorioamnionitis, etc. Um, so again, striking but evidence for progesterone impacting this primary outcome. Quickly to go through the neonatal outcomes, there was no difference in fetal death, antepartum or intrapartum. There was a significant difference in birth weight, as you might expect, um, given the later gestational age relatively of the progesterone group. The incidence of birth under 2,500 grams was 27.2% in the treatment group versus 41.1% in the control group. There also was a difference in supplemental oxygen use, which again, you'd probably predict being associated with the later gestational age at birth of the active treatment group. And once more, 
difference in interventricular hemorrhage was reduced in the active treatment group, probably corresponding to that risk for prematurity as well. There was no difference, though, in neonatal death, transient skipnia of the newborn, respiratory distress syndrome, bronchopulmonary dysplasia, ventilator support, necrotizing enterocolitis, retinopathy, um, or some other neonatal outcomes that are associated with prematurity. So, Faye, ultimately these authors concluded that treatment with 17-OHP weekly from 16 to 20 weeks to 36 weeks of pregnancy reduced the risk of preterm delivery at 37, 35, and 32 weeks in patients with a history of prior spontaneous preterm birth. But there was that overall very high rate of preterm birth, 50% in the placebo group versus 36% in the treatment group. And as we mentioned before, sort of they did that power calculation on the basis of a 36 or 37% incidence in the placebo group. So I think I've got some questions about this. Right. So, you know, I, I feel like this study, though, right, was quite robust in the sense that if you looked at just this paper, you would say, wow, 17 OHP really does do a very good job in reducing the risk of preterm birth. And the FDA said that. They said, yep, this paper really proved that 17 OHP works. Let's make it available for everyone who has a history of preterm birth. And that's what we did for many years. Um, I remember prescribing it for like all of my patients who had previous mm -hmm. preterm deliveries in residency. So that wasn't that long ago. I like to think that it wasn't that long ago. <laughs> um, but, you know, I think before we can draw conclusions, right, of what to do, what's the right thing to do for our patients, I think we have to end this episode because we're running over time and talk about the Prolong study next. All right, so once again, this is Faye. This is Nick. And this has been Kriogs Over Coffee. So guys, if you enjoyed the episode today, head on over to iTunes, Spotify, Google Play. Give us a five-star rating and review. You can find us on social media on Twitter at CreogsOverCoff1, on Facebook and Instagram at CreogsOverCoffee. You can also um, find our Patreon and donate to the show at www.patreon.com slash CreogsOverCoffee. You can find show notes for this episode, all of our previous episodes, and cliffhanger for our next episode on the Prolong trial, um, as well as that Rosh Review Question of the Week on our website, CreogsOverCoffee.com. And if you want to email us, you want to hear about other episodes, or you want to have other ideas or a correction for the show, go ahead and email us at CreogDriverCoffee at gmail.com.